Amen. Might be the first time in history I'm called delightful, but uh, hopefully the sermon's much better than my demeanor. Uh, all right, so as Brett said, we're coming to the conclusion of Proverbs and um, the conclusion of this poem and of this book. And both of them seek to accomplish the same thing. It is godly parents imparting wisdom to young men. And so the practical advice of this book is given in the contrast of two women from the beginning to the end. One woman is life-giving. One woman is life-stealing. One woman calls out for the young and the simple and the impressionable and calls them to listen to her wise counsel. The other one calls the young and the simple and the foolish here and come and indulge themselves in superficial sensuality. That woman, that woman represents the world that this young man is going into. And this wicked seductress that uses her feminine charm to bring him into sin and lead him on the path to death. And so this brings us back to the very beginning of the book. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at some overview uh, of the book itself. And uh, we'll do some, some summary. We'll do some quick exegesis of the, path, the passage that we're in. Um, and we'll do some application at the end or kind of just summary of redemptive history through Proverbs. So I don't have to get into a lot of the technical poetry, I gave you a handout. So hopefully that's helpful. That is an exegetical outline, a summary, a poetic outline of the entire chapter. So it's what we've looked at so far. Uh, there's a lot of poetry and uh, parallelism uh, and chiasm in our section today. So I won't get into that as much, but hopefully visually that will help and it's read so you won't lose it. Um, so I want to bring you back to Proverbs chapter one. These two women are put against each other a couple chapters later. But the initial call of the initial chapter comes from Lady Wisdom herself. Verse 20 of chapter 1, Proverbs. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Remember, remember a lot of these details for later. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will you scoffers delight in, their, in your scoffing? And fools hate knowledge. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Skip down to the culmination of this chapter, this kind of introductory chapter. Verse 32, for the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. This is what's set before the sun at the beginning of the book and the end of the book. All of these commendable attributes we see, we see in one woman who is praiseworthy. She is the ultimate wise woman exemplified in chapter 31. And so as we looked at last week, when we read chapter 31... Like much of the book of Proverbs, we have to read it on three levels, uh, specific to chapter 31. Level number one, 
This is the ideal wife that the son should seek to marry. This is the ideal woman that women should emulate. But, because as verse 10 tells us, no one can find her, she's got to be helping to point us to something else. So level two is how she displays the perfect wisdom of God in female form. Causing us to see how God works in the world and marvel at his wisdom. Marvel at how excellent her character is and how commendable her industrious nature is and how, and, and how great it is that her family praises her. As often we see in Scripture, there is an ideal that we, we aim for, but we will never grasp hold of this side of glory. And then the third level, because the ultimate picture of marriage is Christ in the church, when we think of an excellent wife, this is who Christ came for. He came for a bride. And so in our application, we use her. We see ourselves as a bride wanting to honor our husband, that his name would be proclaimed at the gates, that we're responding to him, our savior, our husband, that we seek to be good stewards and industrious with what he's given us here, that we care for his family. And we'll look at all those things later on. But typically, sadly, this is usually, Proverbs 31 is usually only ever taught at the first level. This is the woman who you need to emulate or, or try to find. And maybe even worse, that she's meant to be every woman and that you aren't godly if you aren't her. I think that is often how Proverbs 31 is taught and is very dangerous. And so either you lean in so much to Proverbs 31 and you take it only literally and you try to match every area of your life up against her, ladies, or you think, I will never be her, so I avoid chapter 31 like the plague because it's just a reminder of how far I fall short. Am I close at all? So when you read the scriptures, we have to make sure we understand the context. You can't pull Proverbs 31 out of the book. You can't pull all of the symbolism that's in Proverbs 31 and disassociate it from all the godly wisdom that's in the rest of the book. And like Hebrew poetry, there is always more than one meaning. If you take Hebrew poetry literally, if we were to translate Hebrew literally, it would seem like Yoda was speaking and we wouldn't understand much of what's going on. Because they use a lot of short phrases that aren't always in the right order that are using pictures that we don't always understand. And so we have to understand the imagery that is being used and the parallelism. So like the handout that you have, we don't realize this, but when, when we, we like music and, and poems that have consistent rhyme and meter, we write so that lines rhyme with each other and that the, the meter is consistent. Hebrew, poet, Hebrew poets are way more creative than modern poets. They are, they're, they're using theme and structure to drive a point. Parallelism shows you comparable ideas. Chiasm should, it points you to uh, the, the main thrust of a poem. And there are, there are plenty of ways that parallelism and chiasm, chiasms are, are, are played out. So when we read this, keep those things in mind. Another thing about Hebrew poetry, typically the first line and often the first words set the tone for the rest. Jesus on the cross in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By just quoting the first line of Psalm 22, he references all of it in the Hebrew mind. And so this poem begins with Eshet Chael, excellent wife. 
That is, sets the tone for the rest of it. And usually, the conclusion of the poem is the purpose of the entire thing. The conclusion of Psalm 22 is Jesus or the one who is, who is killed in the poem, pointing to Christ, David singing it, leads the entire congregation into worship. Here, it is the praiseworthiness of that excellent wife. So, you can't divorce the first line from the rest of it. Um, so again, we're not going to spend much time on the uh, structure. I want to read, I'm going to read verse 10, and then I want to pick up in verse 19. Because remember, verse 10 sets up the rest of it. Proverbs 31, verse 10. An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. We looked at the first half yesterday. There's a transition verse in verse 19 uh, that's a Janus verse. It looks back to the first half and forward to the second, to the second half. She puts her hand to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her, gates, her, excuse me, her husband is known in the gates, and when he sits among the elders of the land, when he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the times to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of your hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as we open your word that you have inspired through your spirit, that you have accomplished through your son. May it do a work in our hearts as well as our minds. May we learn more about you as we see wisdom displayed. May we seek to love you and serve you as your bride, the church. May all the saints in this room find comfort in being called the bride and body of Christ, find their identity in his righteousness. May anyone sitting in this room who is far from him, trusting in themselves who do not know him, may they see how far they, how far they fall short and how hopeless they are without him. And may they cry out in repentance and believe in their only hope of salvation. May your spirit use the word to divide our hearts to lay us naked before you. That he would tear down our arrogance and our pride. That we may be built back up in humility and reverence and awe of you to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's work through. Pick him in verse 19. Again, that, that, that Janus word, the the Greek idea of um, a God that looks back into time and forward into time. And so it's a, it's a transition from her tireless diligence, emphasizing her merchandising and, and um, what she brings home to her thoughtful provision that goes outside of the home and ultimately benefits her, her family. 
And as we mentioned last week, the same hands that spin and weave in verse 19 reach out to the poor in verse 20. So one of the imagery that comes up often in this this, uh, poem and throughout the scriptures is that of hands. And so hands signify work, what you make, what you deliver. Lady wisdom, the Proverbs 31 woman, is a working woman. She's not an idle woman. Her hands are useful. They are skillful. And this picture of hands is is an anthropomorphism of our God. So here we've got level one and level two of this, this poem. Level one, a godly woman should be working with her hands. She should make the most of what God has given her. She, she has skills, and not everyone has the same skills. But her hands, what she does, is very important to who she is. Because, level two, it reflects our God, who with his hands, he created the world. With his hands, he sustains all things, with, who, who, who never slumbers or sleeps. Very often, you speak of the mighty right hand of God, the God who holds the universe in his grasp, the God who we teach little children to sing about. He's got the whole world in his hands because he does. And so when we think of hands and we think of work, it is a good command given to us prior to the fall. I think many of us think that, well, in, in glory, that we won't have to work anymore. I'm just going to kick my feet up and watch TV. Trust me, you won't want to. Work is a good thing. It's a beneficial thing. It was a good thing before sin. We don't know work apart from sin. But imagine the satisfaction you get when your lawn is mowed perfectly. You know, and dinner is done and everything's cooked right. Or the door that's been squeaking forever is, is, is now fixed. You get to do all, the, all, have all of that satisfaction without sin. Without something having to be broken for you to work. We will be working in fields and eating fruit like you have never tasted before. I don't know what work's going to look like, but it's going to be glorious because everything's going to be glorious. And so this idea of work is a, is a commendable thing. It isn't a curse. It's a privilege. To fulfill the creation mandate, to take dominion over all the earth. Jesus told us, I came to do my father's work. He tells us my father is working. It's a good thing because God works. Not because he has to, because he shows us who he is by, work, by his work in creation. And so there's our first two levels. Level number three, this practical book calls the church to work out of her salvation. So what that means is the doctrine that's in our heads, the transformation that happens in our hearts, is worked out in our hands. We don't work because so that God will be pleased with us, we work because God is pleased with us. And so our doctrine is not disconnected from our practice. And our heart is not disassociated from our work. And so that's what we see here in her. Verse 20. So this begins the second section. You'll, you'll see the chiasm in your notes. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. There's a parallel. If you've been reading through Proverbs, and you, you might have noticed that at the end of the first section of chapter 31, this, this commendable king, one of the things that King Lemuel's mother tells him to do, verse 9, open your mouth, judge righteously. 
defend the rights of the poor and needy. He's the judge of the nation. He's the one who decides what happens to the poor and needy. He does it in the courtroom. She does it in the street. She does it face to face. She opens her hands. He opens his mouth because when he speaks, it's, it's power. His word is binding. But she opens her hands because that's what the Lord's given her. To the poor, those lacking earthly goods. To the needy, those who are suffering and afflicted. She has concern. She doesn't take for granted what the Lord has given her. Uh, we're going to look at quite a few parallels. The first one of those would be 1917. Proverbs 19:17 says, "Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed." If you want anyone repaying you, it is the Lord. Again, all of the wisdom we see in Proverbs is exemplified in this woman in chapter 31. And this defense of the poor, level two, this is like our Lord. Uh, these will be up on the screen. I'm going to run through these quickly. But uh, Psalm 35.10. We don't have a mean and distant God. We have a compassionate and near God. Psalm 35.10. All my bones shall say, meaning I believe this with every fiber of my being, O Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. And if you think that, yeah, great, the Lord delivers the poor, those out there, you don't know your own spiritual condition because look at Psalm 40, just a couple chapters over. Psalm 40, verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Don't forget, I don't care how much money you have in your pocket or how healthy you are, you are poor and needy. And Jesus said, those who are poor in spirit and know it, those are the ones who are blessed. This is a beautiful picture of what we see in the church as well. Acts 4. We'll get here in a couple months going through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Look at this picture of the church. So you've got the God who cares for the poor and needy, the people who are poor and needy, and the church, the bride, fulfills this in Acts. Now the full number of those, Acts 4, 32, who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to what, the, to what was sold. This is not socialism. I must say that. This is unity in the church that can happen nowhere else. You can't legislate this. This is a disposition of the heart. Because if you proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you know that you've been brought to new life in him and that he gives you eternal life, who cares about my stuff? It comes out of a grateful heart, not legislated, legislative compulsion. If you still think that, talk to me afterward. 
Let's move on. Chapter 21, or verse 21. Verse 21, she is not afraid of snow for her household. For her household, all her household are clothed in scarlet. She has no fear. There's another parallel to this later on. She's not intimidated by weather. She's not intimidated by circumstances. She is confident. She has no fear of the worst season of the year, wintertime. Not that we know what that is here in, in Florida, but if you grow, up, you grow up up north, what you wear in the wintertime is very crucial. If you don't have the right jackets and the right boots and the right clothing, you're going to be miserable. And you're going to get frostbite and your toes are going to fall off. It's just not good. But this woman, she's not afraid for snow for her household. Her clothing, her, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. You know what she does in wintertime? They get the best of the best. The scarlet, that's the most expensive fabric, the most expensive dye. It's similar to the uh, purple that comes up later. This is the, the, these, these are royal colors because only rich people could afford them. She's, so, she's worried so little about wintertime, she gives them the best that she can offer them. Just like the Lord always gives to his people in need. Isn't it true that when it, the season seemed the worst, when it is cold outside, it is cold in your heart, everything is miserable, you haven't seen the sun in days, that the Lord provides for a way that you wouldn't appreciate if the sun was out. He gives the greatest gifts, gifts in the darkness of our circumstances. That's why David can pray, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Thou art with me. The rod and your staff comfort me. If you walk with the Lord, you have walked through valleys. You have walked through wintertime. And you may not like it at the moment, but when you look back, you realize you were clothed in scarlet because he was refining you and walking you through all along. Similar verse in verse 22, she makes, her, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Notice how rich this woman is. She can bring her gifts or, or her merchandise from afar. She has the most expensive material. Her family lacks nothing. She's, got, she's an entrepreneur. She's got all of these business things going on. Her, her, her husband is important and influential. This adds to her commendation, like in chapter 10, verse 22. Proverbs 10, 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Here's the thing that the church often gets wrong. Wealth is not bad, especially if you read through Proverbs. Wealth is, wealth is commendable. If you know who your God is, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Wealth is a good thing. Everything you have, praise God for it. Everything you have, it comes from him. And if you know him, and if you trust in him, there's no guilt or sorrow with what you, you've given. It's a blessing from the Lord. This is exemplified in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Here's the heart of Lady Wisdom. Here should be the heart of the church. Here should be the heart of the saints. Honor the Lord with your wealth. This is not monasticism. This is not run off into the hills and get rid of everything, and then you'll be happy. No, be content and joyful where you are. The Lord has given you wealth. Honor him with it. 
and with the first fruits of your produce. This is why, as a part of worship, we mention tithes and offerings every week. Because if, if you recognize it all comes from God, how tightly do we hold on to the first tenth or the next tenth? Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. That is a promise. It's not literal. It doesn't mean that we're going to have cases and cases of wine and enjoy yourself if you do. Not all at once. But, um, but the idea is honor the Lord with your wealth and he'll take care of the rest. He will bring the fruitful multiplication of it. And we don't have to feel guilty of that. But here's the real point, I think, in Proverbs 31. is not to emphasize riches or wisdom, but to show you how rich Lady Wisdom is. Not for you to seek out wisdom, but for you to marvel like this woman has got it all. This excellent wife, no one compares to her. No one treats her family the way she does. You are to look at her divine wisdom and marvel and praise her for it. Let's move on. Now we get to the chiastic center where her husband is honored at the gates. Many of you may know this, many of you may not, but in those days, the elders, the heads of families, the fathers, the, the grandfathers, the wisest of the city, they would meet at the city gate. The city gate is where all the business happened and where all the decisions were made. And so at the city gate, the wisest of the wise men, they would, they would take their seats. They would decide what would be best for all of the residents of the city. They would decide between disputes. They would figure out land cases. They would figure out in inheritances. They would figure out how best to protect for and provide for everyone who was in their charge. They took responsibility for everyone else. And so for her husband to be at the gates, this is a great sign of honor. This shows his position. This is not to minimize him. And so what's interesting here is that if you're a son and you are looking for a wife, you want one who's going to make you honorable in the gates. You want, you want a wife who all of the other men are going to be impressed by because she has helped you prepare for your, for, for your meeting and all of, of her dealings bring honor to your, to your name. She's not doing anything to disgrace the family. We don't really get this in a right and wrong culture, but in an honor and shame culture, if she was to bring any dishonor to her husband, it would have generational effects. But she brings honor to his name, and this should be the focus of the church. Think about it. Our husband, Christ, the bridegroom, is the city gate. He is the one who decides. He is the one who provides for and, and protects. Shouldn't we want everyone else to see our husband as great and honorable? Shouldn't we hold highly what we do in his name? Shouldn't we be careful not to bring honor and shame to our bridegroom, our kinsman, redeemer? Working back out of the chiasm into verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. So again, dealing with, with wealth, again here, what I want you to see about Lady Wisdom is that wealth is a tool. It is not a master. Jesus told us you can't serve two masters. 
Wealth is a tool. It is not a master. Lady Wisdom, as we'll see in just a moment in chapter 8, she's been given all the, the power and the influence of the Lord. She's not holding her material goods too tightly. We, in the same regard, our Father owns it all. Our Father is rich beyond our imagination. So as we think about expensive things like linen garments and selling them and, 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 and sashes to the merchants, this isn't prosperity gospel. This is her living out of the abundance that, that, that God has given her and using it to glorify him. But we don't serve it. It doesn't become our master. We don't work for wealth itself. We don't look at gain and, and profit as our end goal. If we are diligent, the Lord will bring those things. But that's not our motivation. And so for many of us, most of us, it is not that easy to make that, that, that separation. That's why uh, my favorite Proverbs, 38 and 9. Because this is a very real prayer for most of us. Because if we're honest, if the Lord was to give us too much, we would not appreciate him and we would trust more in our stuff. And if we didn't have enough, we'd begin to put our trust in our stuff and not trust him anymore and be tempted to kind of cut some corners because we think we got to take things into our hands. This is a great prayer, uh, Proverbs 38, beginning in B, halfway through. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. For most of us, myself included, it is a good thing I'm not rich. If I was rich, it would be very easy to be tempted and brought astray by all of the things that the Lord's given me. And if you're sitting in this room in air conditioning, you are rich. Doesn't always feel like it's working, but it is. Step outside. <laughs> if you're sitting here with more than one pair of clothes in your closet, you are rich. Praise the Lord for that. All right, let's move on. Uh, verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. So the Lord is her strength, is her dignity. I want you to see this uh, in Proverbs chapter 8. So I want you to see all the parallels. We're going to look at the second half first and then go back to the first half. So you can keep your finger in chapter 8. Proverbs 8 is Lady Wisdom. All of the descriptions, the perfect personification of wisdom. And notice all the parallels to chapter 31. So chapter 8 beginning in verse 12. I, Wisdom. This is wisdom describing the wisdom of God describing wisdom. I, Wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is a hatred of evil. And perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. What is this strength, you ask? By me, kings reign. And rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule. And nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the ways of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. That is a strong 
wise woman. And this is what she clothes herself with. And if you're clothed like that, you can laugh. And she laughs just like the Lord does in Psalm 59. This is not like a maniacal arch-villain laugh, but this is a laugh like when your little child or your little grandchild or niece and nephew comes up and thinks that they can hurt you. They come up and they, they just punch as hard as they can. And they think they've done something and you laugh. Imagine that times 10 billion. And this is how God laughs. 59, uh, 8 and 9. Where the Lord says, or excuse me, what David says to the Lord. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. Look at David makes the connection between laughing and strength. If the Lord is your strength, you just chuckle at the world around you. I will watch for you, for you, oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph over my enemies. This is a woman who has strength and dignity in the Lord, and she clothes herself in it. Now, this language you see all the time in in Scripture, and this is a picture in in Hebrew culture, is is symbolic of what you put on. It's not as much now, because you can kind of fake it till you make it. You You can buy designer clothes and have a ton of debt. But in those days, if you wore rags, you were poor. If you wore nice clothes, you were, you were rich. Your clothing told who you were. But it also is, is symbolic for how you carry yourself, how other people know you. If you clothe yourself in a, in a certain way, that's what type of uh, persona you are, you are putting off. So she clothes herself in dignity and strength. We see this in Job. Where when Job would would dare even slightly question God, he tells him, dress for action like a man. Answer me if you can. Put on the clothes of a real man. Step toe-to-toe with me. And as Job does, he repents, as should we. But this is also something that Jesus tells in a parable in Luke 12. He tells about what we are supposed to do until he returns. What is the, the church What's the, what's the demeanor of the church? What's the, the, the clothing of the church supposed to be like? This is Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are the servants with whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Think about that for a moment. The call here from our Savior is to dress for action. Dress ready like he may come at any time. Like you're a soldier and you know that you're going to be shipped out at any moment. You've got your clothes ready. You've got your, your gun ready. You can leave in a moment's notice. He's coming back. And he said he won't, we won't know when, he, when he'll come. Could be an hour when we least expect it. But if you're ready and you're dressed for him, he will dress you. Think about that. How amazing is that, that he will dress himself for service 
and he will have them recline at the table. The king of all the universe, our great husband, will dress himself down to serve us and say, recline, I prepared a place for you. My bride, sit at my table. I will bring you a feast like you've never seen before. And so this is a call to vigilance, to stay dressed for action. If he comes in the second watch, this is in the middle of the night or later in the night, verse 38, or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Stay watchful, stay awake. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief is coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I grieve for Christians or people calling themselves Christians who live an apathetic life. Like, I don't care. Jesus comes, he comes. I'll do whatever I want. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I say. I, I, march, I march to the beat of my own drum. Can you read Jesus' words and interpret that out of there? We're to be vigilant people. We're to be a, a bride who is dressed in the righteousness of Christ and, and, and ready for his return. Not lazy and faithless servants. This is why Paul gives the picture in Colossians 3 of put off the old clothes of the old man and put on Christ because you were chosen in him and put on humility and righteousness and encourage one another in that. But this woman, going back to Proverbs, she's not intimidated by anything. The Lord is her strength. She fears the Lord. What can the world do to me? My God has dressed me in righteousness and splendor. What can you offer me? But that's what the world does. Christ says, I give you my royal robes. And Lady Folly says, come and put this cheap Halloween costume on with me and parade around trying to get everyone to notice you. And how often do we fall for it? How often do we dance and fall right in line with her and parade behind her. This woman who is strong and dignified and laughs at the, and laughs at the world and the, and the time to come. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Speech is a major theme we covered. So I told you to keep your finger back in chapter 8. So now we're going to look at the first half of chapter 8. These are two main characteristics of lady wisdom and the Proverbs 31 woman, who I argue are the same woman. Verse 1, chapter 8, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Besides the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call in my cries to the children of men. O simple ones, learn prudence. O oh, fools, learn sense. Hear what I will speak, noble thing. I will speak noble things. From my lips will come what is right. From my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Notice again and again and again and again. Wealth can be a good thing, but if you get the option between wealth and wisdom, throw wealth out the window every time. That's what 
the book of Proverbs shows us again and again. All right. So now we get to the end of her productivity in her, in, in her um, industry. Now we're going to look at the conclusion of the poem in 27 through 31. Uh, here, the poem begins with her and her husband. Here, it ends with her and her household and her praiseworthiness and how all those who know her praise her. Why? Number one, look at verse 27. She looks well to the ways of her household. Looks well. She's a lookout. This, is, this could actually be translated watchman. She watches out. We, we, we know the watchman imagery. We've looked at this before. But the watchman is the one who is standing on the, 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 the ramparts or the, or the wall watching to see if the enemy comes. The, it was the watchman's job to make sure everyone inside was secure. This is a good wife who is watchful over her family. She is excellent. She's diligent in caring for the members of her household. That is her first priority. She is their watchman. She is not going to let anything happen to her babies or to her husband. This is our call as well to the household of faith. Again and again, we see that the church is who Christ came for. The church is who Christ redeemed. The church is who Christ prayed for and prays for her unity and her, and her purity. Shed his blood for. How much should we look after her and guard her and protect her and build her up? Because we are her. Because our husband has betrothed himself to us. He's paid the bride price. He's going away to prepare a home. And so in that, she looks well to the ways of her household, and she does not eat the bread of idleness. This is not, again, again, this is not an apathetic and lazy woman. She is robust, and she is productive in her life. Proverbs 19, 15. It says, slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. We have more tools than any people in history, and we do less work than any people in history. There are entire careers where you can be lazy. I don't know how. And if we're honest, this is a big struggle for us. Because it's easy to be idle. It's easy to be lazy. We're not working sun up to sundown making bricks. We've got tons of free time, and how's that working out for us? All of our greatest temptations and self-indulgences come in our free time. You rest in the Lord, absolutely, but you don't become idle. You don't become lazy. The picture of the sluggard that we looked at only appears in Proverbs, and it appears all throughout Proverbs. Don't be the sluggard. Don't be the one who is so lazy that he exhausts himself bringing his hand out of the bowl. But how often do we look forward to just being lazy? And that becomes our greatest achievement. I just want to finish what I got to do so that the best thing I can do in my whole life is just kick up my, my, my feet and do nothing else. Every one of us has made that the goal of our day. Not that rest is not good. Not that relaxation is not good. And some of you need to rest. Some of you need to put your, your feet up, but most of you need to get your feet going. That is not Lady Wisdom. She's not idle. 
And so if you've got that kind of woman, you've got that kind of mother, verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed. Rise up. Uh, we don't have this as much in our culture, but if the queen was to walk into the room, if we had one of those, or a, a dignitary walks in, the president walks in the room, everyone stands up. I picture like these little, these little straight-backed Victorian children, like, yes, mother, you know, just this, how wonderful you are. If you got that kind of woman, you would, that kind of mother, you would stand up and acknowledge her. I love the picture of Jesus and Stephen the martyr. Everywhere else, Christ's work is finished and he is seated and rested. But when someone dies because of Christ, with Christ's name on his lips, Stephen says, I look into heaven and behold, I see Jesus standing ready to welcome me home. Stephen didn't deserve that. We don't deserve that. But our bridegroom stands to meet us as we should stand for him. And so I want to ask you, do you care as much about being recognized by your husband as by others? Are you motivated more by his praise or by other people's? Her children stand up, rise, and call her blessed, and her husband also. Do you want to hear those words from your Savior or just the person sitting across from you? How often are we more motivated by someone who breathes the same air as we do? than the one who gave us the breath in our lungs in the first place. Children, do you encourage your mother? Because I'm pretty sure she fed you this morning. She probably clothed you too and bought the clothes. Husbands, do you encourage your wives? When she loves and provides for her family, do you reminder of her godly character and encourage her in the Lord. Wives, do you encourage your husbands? We should be able to recognize when our spouses, when those we, we, we love do things that, that, that honor God and, and build us up and not just complain about what they haven't done, which is typically what we do. But here, her children and her husband are the great example. Verse 29, the, the praise that's in 28 is spelled out here. I think it's the husband speaking. Many women have done excellently. Remember the excellent woman, the Eshet Chayel. Many women have done Chayel. They have, they have done what is excellent. But you surpass them all. Many godly women. But there's one that stands out. Like our God, he stands out above, above and among the rest. So, Ladies, be an excellent wife. Watch over your family, be industrious, be wise and virtuous. But there's only one lady wisdom. You can emulate her, but you, but you can't be her. And so beware of comparing yourself to her or any other woman. Use what God has given you, where God has you, humble yourself, and he will exalt you. I think too much of us are trying to be exalted right here and right now. So there is one lady wisdom in um, 
she, she surpasses them all. And then here's the purpose of the poem here in verse 30. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. There is not a line in this poem that, it, that, that could not be further from what the world preaches, right? This is the exact opposite of what the world tells women. Charm. This is pleasant disposition, sweet and social graces. There are plenty of sweet and nice pagans out there. So what? It might be nice window dressing at the moment, but it's deceiving. Because it doesn't last. It doesn't reveal the heart. But that's what the world says, right? Just be sweet. Put on a smile. If you, if you are nice, everyone will just love you and accept you. And then probably the big one, beauty is vain. How often are women urged to find their identity in their looks? How often are they defined by how attractive they are to the opposite sex? But if that's all you got, that don't last either. That doesn't last as long as charm does. You're better off with charm. At least the use you can bring that as you get a little older. But as it was said earlier on, chapter 11, verse 22, we won't go there, but it's like the gold ring in a pig's snout, the beautiful woman without discernment. Beauty is nothing. It is fleeting. This word here for vain, same words used all throughout Ecclesiastes. It's a vapor. It's a breath. It comes in one moment. It's gone the next. Beauty is very fleeting. And this is the tool. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 6 that the adulterous woman uses. Proverbs 6, verse 20. Here's the warning. The parents here are calling the son away from the adulterous woman. Uh, Proverbs 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk in, the, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and teaching a light and the reproof of discipline are the way of life. What is all that for? To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. Ouch. But a married woman hunts down a precious life. How often are we motivated by superficial things? Drawn away by the beauties and the flashing things in the world. And it's cheap. And it's fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is the purpose of the entire book. Why? The charm, the beauty, that's fleeting. You know what's forever? The fear of the Lord. That does not pass away. That does not change because that is what you can take with you into eternity. You can't take your personality or your looks or your wardrobe or anything else with you into eternity. You know what you can take? The fear of the Lord. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be, be, be praised. The book begins and ends with the fear of the Lord. We define this as affectionate reverence. Yeah, I'm terrified because God is big and he's awesome, but I love him because he redeemed me and he knows me. Begins in Proverbs 1-7 as the, kind of the, 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 the 
thesis for the entire book. Fear of the Lord is being of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. It begins with the fear of the Lord. It ends with the fear of the Lord. And this woman that, we've been, that he's been kind of alluding to and chasing all along, what's the culmination, the, the, the pinnacle of the whole poem? She fears the Lord. It's not her charm. It's not her industry. It's not her, her beauty. It's her fear of the Lord that is to be praised. And any woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Lady Wisdom embodies God's wisdom and shows us true beauty. Up on your screen, 1 Peter 3. This is your identity, ladies. This is beauty that lasts. 1 Peter 3, verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the, wear or the clothing you wear. That's not your identity. That does not define you. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. You are precious and beautiful because of Christ's righteousness. Because he is beautiful. Because he is desirable. And this applies to all of us in the church, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, we looked at this marriage passage many ways, but I want you to look at it now as we wrap to a conclusion this, this wise woman. But the ultimate bride is the one that Christ came for. Look at the language here of Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So often this is marital advice. Don't miss the gospel here. Christ gave up himself for her. Why? What for? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church himself in splendor. The splendor of, the Christ, is, of Christ is the most amazing wedding dress ever. And men, this is the only time it's appropriate for you to wear a wedding dress. The only time. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That is a picture of beauty. The righteousness of Christ. He came so that we might be the spotless bride. For himself. So this woman back in Proverbs 31. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works Praise her at the gates. When God's wisdom is exercised, it will bear fruit. This woman, she should be praised at the gates. And the church should live in such a way that God is praised in the city. And every woman whose hands work to this end should be commended. I want to give you a quick book summary that will be up on the screen. As best I could. Wisdom is a divine quality used in and throughout all creation, given to those who fear the Lord to make righteous decisions and stay on the path to life. Wisdom is a divine quality used in and throughout all creation, given to those who fear the Lord to make righteous decisions and stay on the path to life. Is wisdom a divine attribute or a gift to man? Yes. All right, so now I want to give you a conclusion to Proverbs uh, and a bit of overview of redemptive history. <laughs> Just a bit. Because all mankind comes from women, the story of mankind can be told through women. 
and we see it all throughout redemptive history. So we can share the gospel. We can show all that God has done in redemptive history in terms of femininity. The only thing that was not good about creation was that man was alone. Creation was incomplete until woman became the complement of man and both together could perfectly or, or completely reflect God. But it was the woman who was seduced by the serpent, who gave into the desires of the flashy, unattainable things, and who becomes the foil for the church throughout the Bible. She is the one who becomes the seductress. The feminine form now becomes what entices mankind into sin. But shortly after that, Genesis 3.15, the hope of all mankind is the seed of the woman. And her hope and her comfort is even though this little stinking snake is going to be nipping at my heels, he will one day be crushed by my seed. In the middle of the Bible, the, the, the height of the wisdom and the, the, the riches of the people of God in Solomon's empire, we see two, wisdom, two, two women pitted against each other. Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. We see the Son of God coming from woman. Not from man. Because if she would have, he would have came from Joseph and Mary, original sin would have been passed down to him. But he came through a woman and the Holy Spirit so that he could be preserved. And the contrast of these two covenants Paul shows us are two women. Two mountains. One Hagar, one Sarah, one Sinai, one Jerusalem. The first witnesses after the resurrection of Jesus were women. That promise made back to the woman in Genesis 3.15, now the women get to see their salvation first. They are the first witnesses and the most faithful, faithful witnesses throughout the resurrection. But the Bible also ends where Proverbs ends because the tension in, in Revelation is between two women. So in our last couple moments, I want you to turn to Revelation. I'm going to run through these quickly, but I want you to see this. The same tension that exists in, in, in Proverbs. One woman who is righteous and loves the Lord. One woman who is wicked and adulterous. You've got the church and you've got the great prostitute. Uh, these are not on the screen. So you need your Bibles, and I did that intentionally. I want you to know where these are. So think about this. We've, we've been looking at these, these two paths and these two women all along, and we see it in the culmination of the Scriptures. Revelation chapter 12. There is a woman described here. See if you can figure out who she is. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon as her feet and her head, a crown of 12 stars. If you're in our Acts study, you know the significance of the number 12. 12 tribes of, of, of Israel, the complete number of the people of God. She was pregnant and her crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads. The, the, the dragon is going to be in league with the, with the great prostitute in chapter 17. 
and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. Here's the, the cosmic battle between the heavenly hosts. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. What's so important about this woman and this child? She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. I wonder who that might be. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she was at a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is the people of God, the church of God. Jesus is born out of his own people. But for a time, they're going to be in the wilderness. They're going to be hiding from this, this, this enemy. But this woman is blessed because of her son. But then there's another woman in chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 3. And he carried, away, or he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. She also looks rich. That was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Anytime anything has that many heads and horns, it can't, at the same time, it can't be good. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewelry and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. These women could not be more different. But here's what I love about Proverbs, also what I love about Revelation. There are two women, but only one stands at the end. The only woman left standing in Proverbs is Lady Wisdom. The only woman left standing is the bride, the woman who's in a wilderness for a time. Go to chapter 19. So when, you're, when you get intimidated to read the book of Revelation, here's what you need to know. Jesus wins. And if you're on him, in him, you get his crown and you conquer with him. And you get invited here. All the culmination of all of redemptive history is a marriage ceremony. Then I heard uh, verse 6 of chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be of the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. The saints who are dressed the way Jesus commanded them to back in Luke. It was granted her to clothe herself, here's the clothing again, with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. When all things are consummated, when all things are brought to their completion, what is the, 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 the final picture? When heaven and earth come together, look at chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Having the glory of God, its radiance, like a mighty rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And the rest of the chapter goes on to describe this bride, this great city of jewels. That is beautiful. That is an adornment that, ladies, you can't be lady wisdom in this life. You can't be today. But today, if you're in Christ, that's how Christ sees you. And every one of us, that will be us one day if you are in Christ. So remember that as we get into 1 Timothy. Some of you know why I say that.
So I want to read this hymn, and then the deacons can bring the uh, elements in. Uh, the beautiful hymn by Clara McAllister Brooks about the bride. Sheree showed it to me yesterday. Had to share it with you guys. Listen to these words. Meditate on these. She's summarizing everything that we just read in Revelation. O church of God, thou spotless bride, O Jesus, breast secure, no stains of sin in thee abide, thy garments are all pure. Of unity and holiness, thy gentle voice doth sing, of purity and lowliness, thy songs and triumph ring. She stood attired in spotless dress the early morning through, and then into the wilderness on eagle's wings she flew. And nourished there from heavenly climb, she lived for many years. Now in this blessed evening time, her glory reappears. She leans upon the arms of love, no sin her garment taints. They're made of linen woven above the righteousness of saints. The marriage of the Lamb is come, her bride already stands. The bridegroom soon will take her home to dwell in heavenly hands. I'll give you a few moments. Prepare your heart and reflect on those words. If you are in Christ, saints, that is you. That is us, and we approach the table joyfully. But if you have any unrepentant sins or you are not in Christ, I urge you to call out to him. When they prepare the elements, we will come and we will partake and rejoice together because of what he's done. He has made us beautiful. He has made us his bride.